This is the Book Marketing Action Podcast, and I'm Becky Robinson. Since 2012, my team and I have partnered with more than 100 authors to launch more than 130 business books. On this podcast, I'll share the best insights and actionable ideas from our work so that you can implement sustainable activities to reach your goals for your book. Whether you're a seasoned author looking to breathe new life into your book or someone who dreams of writing a book someday, this podcast will help you be more successful in getting results as an author. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Book Marketing Action Podcast. My name is Aubrey Pastoric, and I'm the producer of the podcast. In today's episode, Becky talks with Minil Bapaya, founder of Brevity and Wit. And before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to share a little bit more about Minil. Minil Bapaya is a marketing, communications, and branding strategist with nearly 20 years of professional experience. Her areas of expertise include branding and identity, corporate marketing, and strategic communications with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Minnow also has a book coming out in September of 2021 called Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. I really hope you enjoy the conversation between Minnow and Becky. Hi, Minnow. I'm so glad I have this chance to catch up with you and learn from you. And as we get started, I wonder if you could share first about what your experience has been like growing your influence online. Oh, what an interesting question. I never think of myself as an influencer. So that's really putting me in a different mindset. But what I have decided to focus on, because as a marketer, I think it's really important to make decisions that allow you to use your resources wisely, particularly when you're a small business and you don't have multi-million dollar budgets for marketing or social media, is because I'm in the diversity and inclusion space, I have primarily focused on LinkedIn because I'm only interested in having conversations about diversity and inclusion, particularly around race and systems of oppression with real people who are being public about who they are. I'm not going to engage in those conversations with trolls or anonymous people on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. And that's also been really great because it's allowed me to build like sort of a professional brand with people who would be interested in working with me and buying our services. So it's been a really great way to target our clientele and then talk about difficult subjects in a way that in a forum that requires respect and decorum, which is really necessary in order to have these difficult conversations. So in building connections on LinkedIn, what's worked well for you in expanding the reach of your work? I think posts where I highlight something and give an analysis that shows my thinking behind why this may be problematic. So for example, recently there was an article by some research company that said, what was it? It was something like women are doing better in the workplace, but women of color are lagging behind. And I wrote a post that was basically asking, how does this post uphold white supremacy? And it does so by assuming that when you say women, you mean white women, by not calling out that what you really white women are doing better in the workplace, but women of color are lagging behind. But by not using the word white, you are creating a schema in everybody's mind that when we say women, white is the default and everything else is other. And that's how white supremacy is held up because we think of it as that like gayness orbits around straightness, transgender orbits around cisgender, and like all other people of color orbit around whiteness. Anne Hathaway talked about that in the Human Rights Campaign Dinner a while ago. And so being able to call out whiteness is really important 
when you want to highlight the differences, right? And to be able to deconstruct this idea that the default human being is white, which is really important. And that post got a lot of engagement because I wasn't trying to, I mean, it was a company that put it out. I'm not shaming any individual, but I'm just sort of explaining, here's the thinking behind this that we have to be conscious of. Here's the thinking that has to be deconstructed and we have to reorient ourselves to the world if we really want to be anti-racist and more inclusive and more equitable. So those are often the posts that I think get the most engagement because I think it allows people to learn from an objective, like third party example and really learn and understand what we're really talking about in DEI. And Menno, I know that one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this topic is because you do have a book coming out. And so obviously that's a major milestone and a great achievement. But I'm curious on the journey to getting that book contract, what if any challenges you faced? Yeah, I wanted to be a published author since I was 16. And so I'm 44 now. So that's a long journey to getting there. I have had some really great mentors who have opened up doors. And what I realized very late in the game is that it's really much more about relationships and networking than the quality of your work and submitting cold submissions to editor in the writer's market. So I think that just knowing how the game is played was a challenge because, you know, as the daughter of immigrants, there was nobody to teach me. And I think another challenge for marginalized voices particularly is that at least in the business space, in business books, it seems like you almost have to be making six figures in order to be able to get the book deal and afford the extra publicity and marketing around the book. And so that's definitely a barrier of entry for most of us. Can you talk a bit more about how you landed on that as the barrier to entry or what you've observed or experienced that led you to that understanding or belief? Yeah. And I think this might be more specific, like I said, to the business book world. But first of all, they want you to have an audience. And so in the business world, that means that you know and you're working with leaders often. And then what I've observe from some of the other people in the space who I have some intimate knowledge of how their books went. They were paying for publicists that cost about $20,000, which is a fair rate for a publicist, but you need to have a business behind that to be able to afford that rate. They were sometimes also paying for ghostwriting. They were also paying for additional marketing. And most of the people that I've known in the business world have actually made much more than just six figures than just a hundred, you know, like they have C-suite salaries, right? And sometimes could be millionaires. And so it's hard to be seen as an authority in the business world if you don't have either some access to the C-suite or have been in those positions, which already then puts you in a six-figure income bracket. Right. So once you start to really deconstruct what are the requirements to be seen as a thought leader in business, you start to understand how much money is also behind those requirements. And then when you start to look at like the demographics, you start to understand that, oh, well, most of the people in those leadership positions are also of a certain race or gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation. So it's not hard to start to deconstruct what's actually underneath those sort of accepted norms of who is a good bet as an author. Got it. So I'm curious to hear more about your perspective in difficulties that people from marginalized communities might face. So what I'm hearing so far is there's this kind of access barrier that may be tied to income or Mm -hmm. financial success. What other barriers or difficulties do you see? Yeah. I mean, obviously it can vary on the type of book you want to write, but if we're still speaking in the business book space, 
It's the networking that I mentioned. I think there's some studies that show that most Black people know at least three white people. Most white people know only one Black person. And so let's use it then. <laughs> like they don't know, like, it, and publishing is very white, right? So then who do they actually know to go to? And then there's always the question of voice and who you're writing for. So in order for your book to have appeal to a wider market, you're often encouraged to write for white audiences. And sometimes that makes sense if you're in a certain field. And sometimes that may not make as much sense, but there's then a whitewashing of the book. And you don't get to write the book that centers your experience or people like you in business because there's a perception that that's a smaller market. And it may be, but that doesn't mean other people can't listen in on those conversations or buy those books in order to like gain a different perspective. So how the book is written gets affected. There are word choices that get affected there. You know, like I had to fight for some things in my book to be able to put it in and to put it in, in in my voice and how I wanted it framed. As a marketer, I'm aware that you have to be cognizant of your audience and meet them where they are. But then there's also, if you're coming from a marginalized identity, you've probably already spent a good part of your life accommodating people of dominant identities. And as a writer, I really identify as a writer. And I think a writer's job is to tell the truth in the most authentic voice possible. And so even though you want to be cognizant of your audience, you also want to be true to yourself. And that sometimes is a battle in an industry that really likes its traditions. It really likes its rules around grammar. It really likes like, well, we've tried this and it doesn't work. And so therefore we're not going to do it, you know? And you have to understand that it's not even fighting, it's like persuading and really skillful conversations and bringing up difficult topics. That also has its own emotional toll that like people from dominant identities don't have to pay. For them, it's just easy, right? Like it's easy to be able to say whatever you want to say. Yeah, it sounds very tiring, mental. Yeah, yeah, I think it can be. You really got to want it. And that's unfortunate because I think there are people from dominant identities who just like spit out books because they don't have to want it that much. Well, yes. And I've heard the argument before, even recently, where someone was talking about, well, people from dominant communities have a difficult time getting a book deal too, Mm -hmm. like that it's not easy for anyone. But I think when you say that, you're really neglecting the fact that there are all these unseen challenges that people from marginalized communities experience that are far beyond just like, well, it's hard to get a book deal. Yeah. It's the same point about sort of privilege, right? Yes, it's hard for you, but it's not hard because of your dominant identity, right? It's hard for me because of my marginalized identity. That's why it's hard. And then it's also hard because for every individual, it's hard. It's a compound effect at that point that takes whatever people in the dominant identities are experiencing and adds another layer to it. And that's the part that the people from dominant identities can't see or maybe need to see more clearly. I was really passionate about the title of my book because I was like, my name is not easy to pronounce or remember. And if we don't make this book title memorable, the way I made my company's name, Brevity and Wit, memorable, nobody's going to remember to buy it because they will never go and search for my name because they will not know how to spell it or put it into Google, right? And so like, that's a unique issue that somebody named like, you know, Becky Robinson, Becky Robinson, or even, you know, there are even like black authors, like our friend Heather Younger. Those are easy names to remember, right? 
I think as somebody from marginalized identity, you want a publisher who's cognizant of that in the development of the book then, you know, and who can help you mitigate and subvert the biases that you're inherently going to face, whether they're fair or not. And that's not somebody actively trying to be biased against me. That's just the world has been conditioned to think that my name is, a, is abnormal or a deviation or an outlier, right? And maybe, and maybe statistically it is. And so you want publishers and editors and publicists who are savvy enough to understand that that's what you have to play against and how can you maneuver around it? That makes a ton of sense. So I'm wondering what else people from dominant identities might be missing about the challenges that people from marginalized identities might face. One of the things that I'll say is that there is now this idea that to get a book publishing contract, you need to have a platform, on, particularly on social media. And I mentioned how I generally like using LinkedIn. But when I first started using LinkedIn, there was a person who was sort of uh, virtually stalking me. And he was actually a, a person known to our family. It wasn't entirely dangerous, but it was scary enough for me. I wanted to block them. And this was early in the days of LinkedIn. And I wrote to LinkedIn saying, I need to block this person. And they're like, well, no, our platform is open to everyone. And so you can either disable your account or not have them on your network, but they can still look you up and like follow you. And there's been lots of documentation of the problem of Silicon Valley and these tech platforms, which were developed by centering the white male experience where they're not necessarily stalked or given death threats or rape threats by talking about things like patriarchy and white supremacy. And so then when you add that up, what that means is that like, I was really slow to join Twitter because I was like, that's a whole other thing. Facebook also has its problems. So it is harder for me to have a platform. And even though I have now been on LinkedIn, I've had less time building a platform than white men who were able to get on in the beginning and weren't worried about being stalked. And so what publishers are missing and what editors are sometimes missing is this requirement of a digital platform is centering the experience of, of particularly white men who have nothing to be afraid of online, as opposed to the rest of us who can get death threats and rape threats by simply just mentioning something that they don't like and who may want to avoid that and then not join platforms and not have a big digital presence. And so this is what we're talking about when we talk about systemic oppression, right? Or systemic inequality, that like one is dependent on the other is dependent on the other. And this is why there's fewer marginalized voices that are published out there. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm curious, and this may not even be a good question to ask, but for those of us who recognize that we are part of a dominant community, maybe that we have privilege, what if anything can we do to elevate marginalized voices? And what's meaningful or useful to you having been marginalized? What's useful and helpful? I guess it's the question. Yeah. So first I'll say that almost all of us have both dominant and marginalized identities. So while I may be marginalized in terms of the color of my skin and the fact that I'm a woman, I'm cisgender, which is a dominant identity. I'm not trans. I am college educated and graduate and have graduate degrees. That is also a dominant identity. I'm in an income bracket that allows me a lot of privilege. I have no physical disabilities, and that allows me to be part of a dominant group. And so it's really important to know that like, we all have various forms of identity and that some of them are dominant and some of them are marginalized. But to your question about 
if you're looking at it for one, the most important thing for people to do is to become aware of all of that, to become aware of the complexity of your identity along all of these different dimensions. And even actually in my book, on my website for the book, it's theequitybook.com. There's a handout on group identity wheel and an exercise to do around this, to raise that sort of awareness of your own identity. And what that allows you to do then is it allows you to, one, you're able to connect with people by being much more authentic, both about the ways in which you've been marginalized and the ways in which you've been privileged. And that leads to a much richer and a much more trusting relationship, in my opinion. Then when you have that, you understand that like, okay, so the places where I am dominant, I need to start to build more awareness. And this is actually why I bring accessibility into my work a lot. Like I need to be more aware of the issues facing the LGBTQ community because I am straight. I need to be more aware of the issues facing the disabled community because I am not physically disabled, right? In terms of what I've experienced from like the identities in which I'm marginalized, Actually, what I often advise people and organizations, the thing to really disrupt in this dynamic of dominant and marginalized or centered and marginalized is that there's any sort of actual hierarchy. Like really in all of our minds, there's this uh, Sonia Renee Taylor, who's a great author who wrote the book, The Body is Not an Apology, talks about how there's this invisible ladder and at the top are like straight white men who are Christian and high income and like everybody else is like somewhere along that ladder. And at the bottom are usually people who are like dark skinned, disabled, queer, and things like that. And everybody thinks that they have their place on the ladder. This ladder is fundamentally a myth. And so what really needs to be done is like deconstructing the ladder. And so what I often advise people to do in organizations is to find a mentor of someone who is in a marginalized identity where you might be a dominant. So if we're thinking about it in terms of race, if like the white identity is primarily centered, instead of thinking that you have to go mentor people of color and empower them, find somebody who's a person of color to mentor you and your own profession. Because that flips that power dynamic then where you start to understand, oh, people of color are not to be pitied. People of color are people to be admired that I could learn from. If you're a man, find a woman who's going to be your mentor. If you're somebody who's straight, find somebody who's LGBT. If you're somebody who's physically without disabilities, find somebody from the disability community that you look up to, that you don't have to help, that you could actually learn from. Because that alone will change how you interact with anybody of those identities. Because it's no longer then about sympathy or pity. It's about true equality. We're like, wow, like you're somebody I admire that I can learn from. And isn't that so much richer than me thinking that I have to help you? So I'm curious as it relates to publishing and books and getting ideas into the world specifically, would that advice still apply? I think so, because really what's needed is like, when we think of a thought leader, we think of a white person. Like if you were a white author, who are the thought leaders of color in your space that you want to amplify, right? As people that you admire, whose work you go to. You're not doing it out of charity. You're doing it because you think they have a damn good book that everybody else should read, right? Like that's part of the work is then like amplifying the people whose work that you admire and doing it authentically. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that has to start with being aware of and consuming that content first. Yeah, absolutely. If we only read books from people who look like us, 
then it's not going to be possible for us to amplify the work of someone who doesn't look like us. Yeah, that's absolutely the first step is to like find somebody outside of your comfort zone to start reading and read profusely. Because the answer and the Laverne Cox did a documentary recently, I think it was called Transparent. And they sort of say the answer to like media depictions of transgender individuals that are problematic is actually just more of them. Because if you have more depictions and you have more voices, then like the occasional bad one doesn't become that big a deal. It doesn't become representative of the race or representative of the gender. And so it's really a need to like influx and to have more of these voices out there because there's so many stories we're not hearing and so many perspectives that we're missing. And it's striking to me how much we're missing, like how much people assume things are a given that are not. So is there anything else that you want our listeners to hear from you today, Mental, about this idea of equity as it relates to publishing and amplifying voices? I think those are my initial ideas. Equity is very, very much about the system. And you get into really nitty gritty things like how the system works and policies and procedures. And those details are important, but I probably don't have the line of sight into the entire publishing industry and system to make more pointed and effective recommendations. I am absolutely open if anybody wants to invite me in to do that. I would be happy to work with any publisher on that. But I think there's a need to first be able to see the system and all the interdependencies before we can really address this. Because I think if you try to just do it one by one, it's like being a tugboat instead of being a lighthouse. You know, like you need to zoom out and have a much bigger area of influence to really solve the system. I think the recommendations I've given here are probably good for like an individual to pick up. But I think the organization and the industry in of in itself needs to have some really tough conversations. Yeah. And I definitely am more writing to individuals, not organizations. And yeah. also the podcast speaks to individuals too. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. As always, we like to end each episode with a few action steps. And here are the action steps for today's episode. One of the things Minnell mentioned was that she realized in the publishing world, it's more about relationships and networking than it is about the quality of your work or cold submissions. So I would encourage you to think about your network and the ways in which you can mobilize them to help you. We will link to this in the show notes, but we do have a network mobilization resource available to help you think through this. And as it relates to equity and inclusion, Minnell recommends just getting a different perspective. Have those difficult conversations. Read books from people that don't look like you or from people who are outside of your comfort zone. Just keep reading and read profusely. And another thing that she mentioned in today's episode was doing some research in order to become aware of the complexity of your identity among all of the dimensions. And she, we will again link to this in the show notes, but she mentions theequitybook.com, which is her website for her book. And on that page, you will be able to download the group identity wheel and do the exercise to raise awareness of your own identity. So just doing that exercise, you know, will help you understand the ways in which you have privilege and the ways in which you've been marginalized. And then you can sort of figure out and understand that you need to bring more awareness to the areas where you are dominant. And finally, I would encourage you to buy Minnell's book and visit her website to learn more about her work in the world. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll subscribe today and tell a friend about our show. I also hope you'll check out our course, The Book Marketing Action Guide. 
where we outline the four phases of book marketing with valuable resources to serve you at every stage of your author journey. Find out more at weavinginfluencelab.com.